church and to this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors. Excited to be with you guys. Um, excited to, to continue our study of the book of Hebrews this morning. If you're new, um, if this is your first time, you have actually shown up as we dive into what uh, much of Christian evangelicalism would consider to be the nerdiest chapter in all of the Bible. Um, so I uh, hope you come back a second time after uh, diving in with us this morning. Um, I don't think you'll be disappointed, though. I think there are some really glorious things that uh, God is going to reveal to us as we just continue to plow through the book of Hebrews together. Um, the book of Hebrews uh, has shown us, essentially, uh, the, the, the glorious reality of, of who Jesus is and what he's done in such a way that it's a little overwhelming. Um, it, it reveals Jesus to be this, this multifaceted jewel, so to speak, that, that you just spin the jewel and you see these various facets that, uh, that make up the person and work of Jesus. And you're meant to be mesmerized um, by that. Um, we're meant to see Jesus as the, the most supremely valuable treasure in all of the universe. He's the, the radiance of the glory of God, the author of Hebrews argues. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the pre-existent creator of all things. Uh, he's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one who made purification for sins through the shedding of his own blood. He's the one who's seated at the Father's right hand as exalted high priest and king, as we'll talk about even this morning. He's the rightful heir of all things. He's God's ultimate and final message to mankind. He's superior to the angels, superior to fallen man, superior to Moses. The, the author of Hebrews, he really wants us to fix our gaze on Jesus in such a way that we feel the weightiness of who he is and what he's accomplished and are affected and changed by that beholding. That by fixing our gaze on Jesus, we might find our confidence in him strengthened. We might find the steadfastness of our hope bolstered. Uh, that we would find ourselves yet again declaring by faith that Jesus is the anchor who holds. The one who stabilizes us in the fiercest storms that we could possibly face in life. And this morning, we get yet again another compelling picture of Jesus meant to comfort, encourage, and sustain us. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews Chapter 7, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. It's pretty close to the, to the very back of, of, uh, of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's, that's difficult to track with, please take one of those Bibles as the church's gift to you. Um, let me do this. Let me just pray for us and we'll, we'll jump in because we've got a little bit of ground to cover this morning. God, you are glorious, you are exalted, you are king, you rule and reign over the universe you have created. Uh, Jesus, you are also exalted high priest, the one who mediates a new covenant established in your blood, the one who pleads our case before the Father. God, I pray this morning that we would find our confidence in you strengthened, that we would find the steadfastness of our hope in you bolstered, uh, that we would find ourselves declaring yet again, Jesus, that you are the anchor who holds no matter what we're going through in this season of life. Would you, would you move in our minds, awaken them? Would you stir our slumbering hearts this morning to deeper repentance and faith for your glory and our joy? It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So my guess would be that a lot of people in Christian evangelical circles could probably say 
Not sure I've ever heard a sermon on Melchizedek. Uh, he gets treated like the Grinch, meaning that a lot of pastors won't touch a passage like this with a 39 and a half foot pole. Um, in fact, most of us have, have probably heard his name so little, if ever, Melchizedek, that we should probably just uh, do the awkward thing and just say it a few times so, so that we know how to say it, right? Can we do that? Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. I think if you do that in front of your bathroom mirror with your eyes closed when you open them, he actually shows up. I've heard that's a, that's a thing. Um, uh, some of you are probably really glad that we're not going to uh, meet as community groups this week because it's Thanksgiving break so that you don't have to say the name Melchizedek in response to a community group question. Um, so you're welcome for aligning the stars in that way. Um, if you haven't figured it out yet, because this is a, a little bit more scholarly uh, chapter of the book of Hebrews, I'm just going to do a stand-up comedy routine to kind of kind of cushion the blow a little bit. Um, before we even jump into chapter 7, it's probably helpful to know that, that there are uh, two Old Testament references to this, this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, um, both of which the author of Hebrews is going to use to make the argument that Jesus is our superior and perfect high priest. Um, the first of those two references is found in Genesis chapter 14. Um, let me just, uh, let, let me paint a picture of the scene that you find in Genesis 14. So you have you have these four kings, and they're led by King Cadorlamer, which sounds like a character out of Lord of the Rings, which just makes the story all the, all the greater. Um, and, and so these four kings, led by King Cadorlamer, attack the area known as the Transjordan. And they take hostages along the way, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. And so Abraham recruits a few hundred trained men within his household, and he goes after these guys. And he and his men establish a sneak attack um, and end up putting the smackdown on these pagan kings and their armies. And Abraham acquires all of the plunder and rescues the hostages, including his nephew. Um, moral of the story, don't mess with Father Abraham. He is a bad dude. He is tougher than Jack Bauer. Um, that's important to keep in mind, actually, for where we're going to go as we plow through Hebrews chapter 7. On Abraham's way home from battle, we actually pick up the story in verse 17 of Genesis 14, where at this point he's referred to as Abram. And, and it says this, Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cadorlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham is there. Melchizedek shows up on the scene. We get a couple of clues as to who the more significant character in this story actually is. Notice the, the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham. Um, it's Abraham, the father of many nations, the one who would be described as the friend of God, the patriarch of Israel who gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Abraham sees himself as being in the presence of someone greater than himself. And not only that, it's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham, not the other way around. Remember, God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that in, in him, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. That God promises to bless the nations through Abraham. And yet, it's Abraham who, who humbly receives a blessing from this shadowy figure, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Now, that's all you get with respect to Melchizedek's life. He's there for a total of three verses in Genesis chapter 14, and then he's gone like a dandelion in a breeze. 
The only other time that you even hear of Melchizedek is if you fast forward the story, about a thousand years, David as king of Israel is inspired by the Holy Spirit to record these words. We actually looked at them back in the summer in our series through some of the Psalms. Psalm chapter 110, David says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Um, As we talked about this summer, these words find their ultimate fulfillment in the coming Messiah. Notice that you have this kingly language seated on the throne of heaven, a mighty scepter in hand, a ruling in the midst of one's enemies. There's a a king who's part of God's glorious plan of, of redemption. But notice what... David includes in verse 4 of Psalm 110 a reference you're going to see a couple times in this morning's passage. He goes on to say, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see that? Not just a king, but a priest. The office of priest and the office of king in the Old Testament were two distinct offices. If you were a Davidic king, you were not also a Levitical priest. And if you were a Levitical priest, you were not also a Davidic king. Here, David speaks of one to come hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene, one to come who would bring the two offices together. And there are other references in the Old Testament that points to to this bringing together of the office of priest and king. You you start to see what the author of Hebrews is is trying to do here. He's going to make this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. He's going to argue that there's only one king in the lineage of David that fits the role of, of both priest and king combined, and his name is Jesus. He's going to argue that Jesus is the greater and perfect priest-king combination knockout punch in whom we can put our trust. Let's see how the author of Hebrews actually puts those pieces together. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Just like in the two Old Testament accounts of of Melchizedek, here the author of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek is both king and priest. In fact, his very name means king of righteousness. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And he's also the king of Salem, Uh, from the word shalom, which is where we we get the word peace. So you have the king of righteousness, the prince of peace. Does that sound familiar? Already you get this hint of of Jesus in this passage. In verse 3, he goes on to say, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, Let me just stop here for a second. Here's where I think people get a a little tripped up um, with respect to the question, who is this Melchizedek from the Old Testament? Um, Some people argue that this is pre-incarnate Jesus, that before Jesus shows up by way of the feeding troughs of Bethlehem, he actually comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 14 and has an encounter with Abraham. But notice that the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. It doesn't say that he is the Son of God. It says... He's like the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. In other words, Melchizedek from the Old Testament is is not Jesus, but he is like Jesus. And the author of Hebrews wants us to see a couple of the ways that he's like Jesus so that we might stand in awe of Jesus all the more. 
You might say, well, what about the first part of verse three? He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. I mean, doesn't that mean that he's eternal? To which I would say, not necessarily. Um, from a literary standpoint, as he's presented in the story, who are the father and mother of Melchizedek? We don't know, right? He has no biblical genealogical record. If you go to Ancestry.com and look up Melchizedek, you'll be wasting your money and your time. There, there is no family history on this guy. And that's a big deal because if you trace the story of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, your genealogy mattered big time. You want to be a Levitical priest, you have to be in the lineage of Aaron. Melchizedek has no genealogy. He came long before Aaron, as did Jesus. Jesus has no beginning of life or, or end of life. He's the Alpha and the Omega He's the beginning and the end. Verse 4, he goes on to make his argument, and he gets a little complex here, um, and you begin to see just how hard he wants to argue his point. He says this in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So he's uh, the author of Hebrews is attempting to show how Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. We know that the, the Levitical priests of the Old Testament received tithes from the descendants of Abraham. But look at what he says in verse 6. He says, But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, from the Levites, remember he came before the Levites, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, the Levites, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, Melchizedek, the one with no Ancestry.com report. Are, are, are you tracking with where he's going here? He's, he's simply trying to show that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood that you read about throughout the course of the first 39 books of the scriptures, essentially. Uh, and he goes to make some pretty great, uh, to some pretty great lengths to make his argument. L listen to the way he even says it in verse 9. This is a weird way to logically argue your point. He says this. He says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor Abraham when Melchizedek met him back in Genesis 14. Are you tracking with what he just did there? He's arguing that the Levites, in a sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek back in Genesis 14 because they were in the loins of Father Abraham when that encounter actually took place. He, he's doing everything that he possibly can to show that the Levitical priesthood was always meant to point to something greater than itself. And now, beginning in verse 11, he's going he's gonna to show how the Levitical priesthood is insufficient, how it doesn't solve or fix the problem of sin. Look at verse 11. He says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? In other words, if the Old Testament Levitical priesthood could fix our sin problem, we wouldn't need a greater priest. The, the whole argument that the author of Hebrews is making that Jesus is the greater high priest would have no significance whatsoever. 
But the Levitical priesthood was never intended to fix the problem of sin. It was meant to point us to the need for Jesus. Um, when you think of the law, we, we could get into a really complex unpacking of, of the way that the law is used in Scripture and is meant to be used. But one function of the law is that the law acts like a mirror so that when we, when we look at the law, we're meant to see the reality of just who we are and, and we're meant to see uh, the, the dirtiness of our very souls. The fact that we can't live up to the law shows our deficiencies and our sinfulness. But... The, the law is not then meant to clean us up. It, it would be just as strange to try to use the law to clean up your soul as it would be to try to take a mirror off of the wall when you see dirt on your face and try to rub your face with the mirror to clean yourself up. We, we don't do that, right? We, we use the mirror to show us what, what really is in terms of ourselves, and then we run to the water to clean ourselves up. The gospel the beauty of the person and work of Jesus Christ is the water that we run to. Jesus is on the living water. We go to Jesus to clean us up in the midst of our sinfulness, not the law. He goes on to say in verse 12, he says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken, talking about Jesus there, belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, the tribe of Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, we, we have a problem here. Moses talked about priests coming from the tribe of Levi, not the tribe of Judah. How can Jesus be our high priest if he's from the wrong tribe? He's from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. Verses 15 and 16 are going to give us the answer to that question where the author of Hebrews tells us this. He says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He's talking about Jesus there. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not based on his Ancestry.com record, but by the power of an indestructible life. How can Jesus be our high priest if he's from the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi, answer, he has something better than genealogy papers. He's indestructible. He's able to live forever. He is a death-conquering king. Verse 17, he says, For it is witnessed of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's the, there's the reference to Psalm 110. So in other words, you don't have to be a Levite in order to be a priest. You can get AP credit as long as you're eternal. As long as you're a death conqueror. Any, any alphas and omegas in the room this morning? Anybody who's risen from the grave and conquered it in this, in this auditorium? You and I cannot present that transcript, but Jesus can. That's what he's saying. And he goes on to say this in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Again, it's that you can't take the law in order to perfect your conscience, your soul. Um, but on the other hand, he says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That the law can show you that you need saving, but the law cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you by fulfilling the law on your behalf. And in doing so, verse 19, Jesus has made a way for us to draw near to God. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that we can now through the blood of Jesus Christ, confidently draw near to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. We have access to the living God. 
I love how Kent Hughes says it in his commentary. He says, think of the day this was accomplished. It was the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., and the darkness was beginning to lift so that all of Jerusalem was cast in an eerie netherland. And just then, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. At that moment, the earth shook so much that rocks cracked and the curtain of the temple, as thick as a man's hand, tore from top to bottom. The insufficient Levitical priesthood was over. Perfection was attained. The new Melchizedek began his eternal ministry. Perfection attained. The curtain torn. Immediate access to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Rather than retreat in our sinfulness, we can draw near to God through the sinless one, Jesus Christ. He goes on to further strengthen his argument. In verse 20, he says, he says, it was not without an oath uh, for those who formerly became priests were, such, were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest by an, uh, with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Going back to last week, we talked about when God makes an oath, he binds himself to his very word by his very character such that you can bank on it. I love the way William Barclay explains that. He says, Whatever God confirms by an oath becomes something so utterly unchangeable that it is woven into the very fiber of the universe and must remain forever. That's pretty cool. That's the certainty with which Jesus is our forever priest. His, his eternal priesthood is woven into the very fiber of the universe. All of the promises and blessings that are ours because Jesus is exalted high priest will never be taken away as long as Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's going to make the argument and has been making the argument that Jesus is indestructible. His priesthood will never end. He says, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Why is it better? Because it's mediated by an indestructible priest, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say it, uh, very clearly in verses 23 through 25, he says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The, the final word, if you read the Old Testament, the final word on every Levite priest in the Old Testament, and he died. Every Levite priest had to hand off the priesthood to the next one down the line because every single one of them died. But Jesus doesn't have to do that. You don't have to worry about Jesus dying in the midst of his interceding on your behalf. He died and rose from the grave never to die again. I mean, think about what that implies, okay? We've We've nerded out for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, right, through one of the, the most scholarly parts of the book of Hebrews, I would argue. And the question might be, what are the implications? What, what am I supposed to take away? What should make my heart sing as we engage Hebrews chapter 7? Well, think about this. Think about what Jesus' permanence means for us. On the one hand, and this is a little more implicit takeaway, just think about how difficult it is to move from one place to the next and to have to, to get to know people and, get to, uh, and to be known by people over the course of time. You have to retell your story. You have to reshare your struggles, invite people into, into the, the past and present chapters of your life. What the author of Hebrews is saying is you don't have to do that with Jesus. 
Isn't that good news? He knows every prayer you've ever prayed. He remembers every conversation you've ever had with him. You never have to retell your story or reacquaint Jesus with your struggles. On the other hand, and this is the more explicit takeaway, think about the assurance you could have in terms of the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus never stops pleading our case to the Father. His permanence is there, and and that has significant implications for our salvation. We sing it a lot around here, this this great hymn before the throne of God above. And it's kind of cool when you get to the the biblical fountain where where that that song was birthed. Anytime you you get to the biblical fountain where a song was birthed, it's a cool moment for the church. And and I, I believe this is that moment for us. When we sing those words before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That's Hebrews 7. Jesus never stops pleading the case of the redeemed. Thus he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And by the way, that is, that is the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. If you're wondering, like, what, what's the summary? If we could put it in a statement, a sentence... Uh, He's going to do that, actually, when we get to chapter 8 next week. little teaser. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews says this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, okay? Everything we've talked about up to this point, here's the summary. We have such a high priest, he says, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Ultimate point of the book of Hebrews Jesus, as exalted high priest in heaven, lives to do something that he could not do while here on earth. As high priest in heaven, he brings sons and daughters of the Father, like you and me, to glory and rest in the presence of God. As a professor of mine recently said, the central theological concern of the book of Hebrews is that we have in heaven a resurrected and high priest who ministers for the church in heavenly places. Remember, that we've talked about this throughout this series. The church is the new wilderness wandering generation on pilgrimage to the promised land. The beautiful hope of getting there, uh, Hebrews 7, Jesus as high priest never stops pleading our case. If you're... If you're not a Christian, you come in this morning and you're going, what in the world does this matter in in terms of my life? What what are the implications for me? What would you say to me? Um, A couple of things that I think are are worth considering if you're not a a Christ follower. Um, For one, I think it's important to come face to face with the reality that based on what the author of Hebrews is saying here in chapter 7, that if you're not a Christian, Jesus is not pleading your case to the Father. You have to. You have to plead your own case, which brings up another question. On, the, on what basis are you going to plead your case to God? On what basis should God allow you to enter into the kingdom of heaven? According to Hebrews chapter 7, it cannot be on the basis of good works. Remember, the law can show you you need saving, but it cannot save you. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus can save you by fulfilling the law on your behalf. Jesus can save you by making atonement for your sin through the shedding of his own blood. Jesus can save you by conquering Satan's sin and death through his triumphant resurrection. Jesus can save you by pleading your case to the majesty on high as exalted eternal high priest. In coming face to face with 
with the reality that Jesus is not pleading your case to the Father and the reality that you don't have an adequate basis upon which to plead your own case, my prayer is that you would turn to Jesus in faith, that, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that you would receive the salvation that's offered to you, that you would put your trust in him as rescuing priest and that you would bow your knee to him as exalted king. And if you are a Christian, you want to talk about blessed assurance? I mean, rest assured that Jesus will not stop pleading your case. He ever lives to make intercession for you. Your name is graven on his hands. We're going to sing that in just a minute, and I hope it resonates with you all the more uh, as a result of our time in, in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Your name is graven on his hands. Your name is written on his heart. Your name, personally, as long as he remains exalted high priest, what the author of Hebrews is saying is the anchor holds. You can be sure of that. Isn't it good news that his priesthood is eternal, indestructible, never ending? He goes on to close out chapter 7, verse 26. He says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He closes out this chapter by saying not only is Jesus a better priest because he will never die, he's also a better priest in that unlike the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin. If he has to offer sacrifices for his own sin, we have a big problem on our hands because Jesus cannot then die in the place of sinners like you and me as an unblemished sacrifice. Not to mention that if Jesus is a sinner, um, at least 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a lie, which says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If Jesus isn't sinless, he has no righteous record to give to you or to me. But what the author of Hebrews here is arguing is that Jesus does have a perfect sinless record to offer us. He's better than the Old Testament priest. He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because in the language of verse 26, I love the, the, the language here. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. Summary of chapter 7. Jesus is a sinless priest who never dies. The Levitical priests were sinners who ultimately died. Jesus is sinless and indestructible. Jesus is greater. He's the king of righteousness. He's the prince of peace. He's the indestructible, death-conquering alpha and omega. He's the law-fulfilling, sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice. He's the one who never stops pleading our case to the Father. Behold, church. Fix your gaze. That's what we're meant to do this morning, just like we've been doing throughout the course of this series all the way up to this point. Remember, this is a slow burn. If you're, if you're wrestling with the, can we just stop fixing our eyes on Jesus and get to the application of the book of Hebrews? That is the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. Don't stop beholding. Don't stop fixing your eyes. And he gives us plenty of an eye full of Jesus here in chapter heaven, uh, 7. Um, question is, will we 
feel the weightiness of who he is and what he's accomplished? Will we be affected and changed by the beholding? Will we find our confidence in him strengthened? Will we find the steadfastness of our hope bolstered? Will we declare him to be the anchor who holds yet again this morning? If you thought the nerdy chapter on Melchizedek didn't have something to offer the soul, you were sorely mistaken. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of communion and prayer and singing, kind of all all collaboratively brought together. Um, And so from this point on, um, as I pray and leave the stage, um, the, the communion table will be open. If you're a Christian, that, that meal is for you. Um, we take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Um, like Melchizedek greeted Abraham so long ago in Genesis 14, offering him bread and wine, so Jesus offers the same to his church. The bread and the cup representing his broken body his shed blood, that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has secured our righteousness. He has secured our peace. Let's sit with that. Let's soak in that beautiful truth of the gospel this morning and then, and then come receive of the bread and the cup as a remembering of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and also as, a, as Paul says, as a proclaiming of his death until he returns. There's even something missional about communion as we come and proclaim the gospel through the receiving of, of the bread and the cup. And then even as we sing, think about those words Uh, particularly from that song, Before the Throne of God Above, how they find their roots in Hebrews chapter 7, the glorious truth that Jesus is, is our interceding eternal high priest.